Thanks to Acast for hosting and monetizing this podcast. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About Myths, baby, the podcast where I go into incredible detail about the ancient Greek plays because I cannot help myself. 
I'm your host, Liv, she who forgot the notion of brevity many years ago now. That's right, I am here with the finale of my series on Euripides' incredible and incredibly weird play, Alcestis. Did I realize it was so weird when I first set out to cover it? No. <laughs> Just hadn't heard the name countless times and knew it featured Heracles, so figured, why not cover it shortly after my series on the Trachinii? I actually briefly worried that it would be too dark next to my Trachinii. How wrong I was. Now I'm glad I did it, but for like totally different reasons, because this is a very, very different Heracles. This play is so many things, and so few, like all at the same time. It has such a different structure from the other tragedies I've covered. It's shorter and blunter, and it just gets to its point and kind of rushes through those points, though in quite impactful ways. That it opens basically with Alcestis's sacrifice and death in what feels in the moment to be moving and emotional before the odd introduction of Heracles for what feels like only a split second, and then to just toss in this encounter between Admetus and his father Fairies, who basically turns every opinion we might have developed about Admetus like, on its head. If he did love his wife as much as it seemed, does that mean anything if he's willing to let her die in his place simply because he doesn't want to die? There's no tangible, meaningful reason for him to live over her, nothing to suggest he's more worthy or deserving of life other than he's got a man, or even that he wants it more, besides, I suppose, the simple fact that she agreed to die for him. That it builds all of this to then swirl it into a weird Heraclean moment of Gods, well, we haven't even gotten there yet. <laughs> I know I say this every time, so it must sound forced by this point, but truly, every time I dive into a new Greek tragedy, my mind is blown once more. Not always with a love or obsession with the play, as I felt with Trachinii or Medea or Bacchae, for that matter. But in this case, this absolute fascination with what on earth Euripides was doing with this play. It's tragic. It's comedic. It was the fourth play in his series that he submitted for this one celebration that served actually in the place of the intentional, like fully comedic satyr play that normally would have appeared in that spot. Oh my God, there's so much to say about it. Of course, on Friday, I'm speaking with the wonderful and brilliant past guest, Dr. Ellie Mack and Roberts, all about this play and its weirdness. So we're going to dive into much more of that when it comes to what makes it so unique. But man, what a play. I am enthralled. So let's get back into it. What is Heracles going to do, you might wonder? Well, <laughs> where we last left this wacky bunch, Alcestis died. Was it tragic in the moment? Yes. Am I comfortable referring to it as part of the general wackiness now? Also, yes. Alcestis died and Admetus was very, very emotional. He made a lot of promises to her, one of which was to have a year of mourning, not to bring any song or music, any festivities into their home for a full year after her death. And then Heracles arrived. And well, Admetus stubbornly refused to admit that yes, his wife has actually just died, and yes, he's about to perform the necessary rites on her body, and like, maybe he shouldn't have a guest to celebrate. <laughs> Instead, he welcomed Heracles, basically confirmed that the dead person he was going to bury was a stranger, and no one of any importance, and then he insisted Heracles stay there in their home in Phiri. 
Meanwhile, Admetus's father shows up, and the two have a ridiculous and long-winded fight about right and wrong and life and death and sacrifice and martyrdom and just how much you can reasonably expect from your parents. We landed on, you don't have the right to ask them to die for you. Weird. I know. Then, while an attendant arrived on the stage to talk about how Heracles was being an absolute shit show inside the house, he's drunk and singing and disrespecting absolutely everything about the household's grieving of Alcestis, again, because he has no idea that she's dead. A tragic comedy indeed. This is episode 165. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions, Euripides' Alcestis. When the attendant has finished his speech explaining to the chorus and the audience what has been happening inside, all about Heracles' inappropriate behavior, how awful and rude he's being, he's then joined by Heracles himself, who stumbles out of the house drunk. And he asks the attendant why he's so serious. I'm a guest, he announces. Quote, attendants shouldn't be grim with guests. And then he proceeds to insert his entire Heraclean-sized foot, sandal and all, into his mouth. Not literally, in case it's not clear. He goes on, telling the attendant how he should actually behave with guests of his master's household. You should be welcoming and friendly. Then he says, quote, Come here so you can learn and be wiser. Do you know what it means to be immortal? I think not. How would you? Then he proceeds to lecture the attendant on the realities of death in mortals, how no one knows when they're going to die, they're all going to die someday, and that mortals have no say in their own fates. Yeah, he finishes this with, quote, So with this lesson of mine in mind, cheer up and have a drink. Today belongs to you. The rest belongs to choice. Seriously, this play. What even is it? He sounds like a bad psychic at a fair. The dramatic irony, the dark humor, the whole speech is just, it's something else. He's literally telling the guy who's just had an entire speech dedicated to expressing his and the entire household's grief at the death of Alcestis, specifically lamenting just how poorly they're being treated by Heracles in their grief, and here he is talking about how everyone is going to die someday, how no one can control their fate, so cheer the fuck up and have some fun. The phrase, read the room, comes to mind. But Heracles isn't done. This Heracles is every stereotype you might imagine. He's big and oafish, and he's no idea the gravity of the situation that he's in. He thinks he has all the answers because he's Mr. Big Hero. But meanwhile, he sounds like the world's biggest asshole, and all en route to steal some man-eating horses, because Heracles has got a Heracles. He continues his unsolicited advice, telling the attendant he should put aside his grief, his utterly over-the-top grief, and just enjoy himself. Quote, haughty people with frowning faces are not, in my opinion, really living a life at all. They're living a calamity. What an enormously hilarious dickhead. Finally, though, the attendant responds. Yes, we get it, he says, but today isn't really a great day for drinking and laughter. 
Why not? Asks Heracles. <laughs> the woman who died is a stranger. What's the big deal? Why is everyone so fucking depressed? It's <laughs> basically what he says, though I made a little showier, of course. But he adds very explicitly that the masters of the house still live. Uh, what? They live? The attendant repeats, quote, don't you know what's happened? Psh, yeah, of course I do, Heracles replies, if your master hasn't lied to me. This seems to make things clearer to the attendant than Heracles. He replies only to note that Admetus loved to play the host too much. Should I have been more concerned about an outsider's death? Heracles asks. To which the attendant replies, and this sarcasm is in the translation. It's my time to shine. Quote, an outsider, all right. That's what she was. And now, slowly but surely, Heracles starts to, okay, can slowly understand what's going on. He asks whether Admetus lied to him, and the attendant notes that it is not a good time for him to be a guest, but that Admetus's pain is their concern, not Heracles's. And then again, slowly but surely, Heracles whittles down who exactly has died. Not a child or his father? He asks first. Nope, the attendant replies. It was Alcestis, Admetus's own wife. <gasps> Awkward is certainly what Heracles feels, though he doesn't say. Quote, she died and then you entertain me? The attendant confirms that, yes, that's exactly what's happening, because Admetus was too ashamed to turn him away as a guest. To which Heracles replies, once again, to refer to Alcestis in her newfound martyr fashion. What a wife. What a wife. With the truth of the situation finally revealed, Heracles feels pretty bad to have been so completely unaware of what was going on. Admetus, his friend, is off burying his wife and uh, he was just inside drinking and singing? He feels awful about it and he asks the attendant where he will find Admetus. Where is he burying her? The attendant tells him, giving him instructions on where he will find Admetus, where he will find Alcestis's tombstone. And, well, Heracles doesn't respond to him. He's just an attendant. Instead, he begins a monologue with the attendant standing right there. He begins, quote, You, my much-enduring heart and hands, show now what kind of son Alcamini, child of Electrion of Tyrans, bore to Zeus. Leave it to Heracles to compliment himself while ostensibly speaking of a woman's tragic martyr death. But he goes on, no, this isn't all about him. It's just that, well, he's got a plan. He's got a plan that he came up with just right there on that spot. It's a good plan. Definitely. Well thought through. Certainly not spur of the moment. Definitely not ridiculous. Certainly realistic and not wild and absurd. That's right. Heracles announces to the attendant, the chorus, and the audience in the theater that... His solution for how badly he feels at celebrating while Adamatus mourned is to bring Alcestis back from the dead. 
Which, sure, could sound incredibly heroic and dramatic, kind of beautiful. I mean, what a gift it would be, not only to Alcestis and Admetus, but to the whole of their household, their children, these servants who grieve for her. What a gift! And I mean it is, but it's perhaps less heroic sounding when you hear his actual plan. Quote, I'll go and watch for the Lord of the Dead, death in his black robe. I'll find him, I expect, drinking the blood of offerings by the tomb. And if I ambush him and grab hold, clasping him in the circle of my arms and crushing his ribs, no one will release him until he gives up the woman to me. He's going to squeeze Thanatos real tight until he gives up a dead woman. What is this play? I love it so much. But not to worry, if you think that maybe, just maybe, squeezing Thanatos, the god of death, literal death himself, real, real hard until someone gives up a dead woman isn't going to work, Heracles has a backup plan. That's right, he's not crazy. No, no, he's thought this through. If he loses Thanatos, or if he doesn't find him drinking the blood of sacrifice by the tomb like he expects, if squeezing him real tight doesn't work, well, in that case, he'll travel to the underworld itself, all the way to the realm of the dead. And mind you, this is before he got Cerberus as one of his labors. He'll travel all the way to the land of the dead to bring Alcestis back. That is the only reasonable response to feeling badly about not knowing that the household was grieving her death. A proportionate response, to be sure. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Heracles has determined the only plan of action to make up for how rude he was, if inadvertently, in the House of Admetus. He will bring Alcestis back from the dead, one way or another. And once he's made this announcement that really can only be read as comedic, he just leaves the stage in the direction that Admetus brought Alcestis' body, presumably in the hopes that he will catch Thanatos there by the grave and squeeze him so tight he'll give Alcestis up to the world of the living. So much for the concrete will of the fates, I guess. With Heracles offstage, the attendant, too, returns to the house, just as Admetus returns to the stage with his attendants, but they're no longer accompanied by Alcestis's body. Admetus is singing of his sadness. He's lamenting his new life without Alcestis, unsure where to go or what to do or say without her. Quote, I envy the dead. I long for them. Their home is where I love to live. Which, I mean, dude, you explicitly asked your wife to die for you and now you're wishing you were dead? You literally could be in the world of the dead right now and your wife could be living happily with your children. This is entirely on you. Still, the man is sad. We will let him be sad. Suppose he didn't quite imagine what it would feel like for the love of his life to die for him and how he'd have to live on in the world without her. He begins to sing along with the chorus, expressing his grief in sounds and cries. Oi, moy, oi, moy. The chorus tells him that he'll never see his wife again. That's where his pain comes from. He replies to them, quote, What greater calamity is there than for a man to lose his faithful wife? I'm going to try to not just point out every time he says shit like this that is entirely and completely his fault, and not even in a tragic, oh no, can't believe this happened kind of way. No, he literally asked her to die for him, and he doesn't seem to be taking any responsibility for that. He's acting like she's died by some other means, something not by his actual choice. They go on and on, though. The chorus tries to reassure him, to remind him that people often must face such tragedies, and they have to go on to move forward. That's what life is. And while he often interrupts them mid-sentence with his cries of sadness, Oi moi! Oi moi! He asks them, quote, 
Why did you stop me from hurling myself into her empty grave, lying with her in death, she who was best of all? Hades would have gained not just one, but two faithful lives together. I won't say it again, but you know what I'm thinking. The chorus continues trying to reassure him. They tell him a story of someone else who lost a loved one, their only child. But that this man bore his pain, he survived, even though he was old and aged and had no other children. But Admetus just keeps talking about his own grief and tragedy. He doesn't even register what they're saying to him. Quote, Roof, walls, doors of my house, how can I go inside? Live here with my life so changed, so different, oi moi. And this is where I like to think the chorus decides they've had enough of his bullshit. They've been listening to all of this without pointing out the irony involved, the absurdity of everything Admetus has been saying. But they're done. After he continues to lament his life, his sadness, his lost relationship with the love of his life, they tell him, quote, You spared your body. You saved your life. Your wife died and left behind your love. What's new in this? If you think Admetus was his most obnoxious before this, too, strap the fuck in. His response to the chorus reminding him, Dude, this is on you. You made this decision and now you're having to live with it. He says, quote, I believe, my friends, her lot is happier than mine. Yeah, that's what he says. And he's not done. He goes on, quote, No pain will ever reach her, and she gained fame and put an end to many troubles. He keeps on like this, asking how he will ever exist in his own home now. Where can he turn? He's so lonely he'll be driven away, driven mad. How can he handle the sight of their empty bed? How can he face his children, his servants? Seriously. I just, I can't keep quoting this, but just know that he does not stop. He's now explicitly talking about how his own pain is so much worse than death because he has to live without her. Which I mean, like, I think... That might be a reasonable thing to say if one is grieving the death of a loved one, but when they did not explicitly ask for that person to die on their behalf. Therein lies the big issue, Admetus. And well, then he does finally take some semblance of responsibility for the situation, if only in the form of worrying people will be judging him for what he did. Which, I mean, I I hope they are. Quote, Someone, an enemy, will say, look at him, he lives in shame. He couldn't stomach dying, so to escape it, the coward gave Hades his wife instead. After that, he pretends to be a man. Like, yeah, that that's exactly what happened. He laments this fame that he will now have, how their words and his own suffering is all he'll have left. <sighs> the chorus begins to sing. Not of Admetus, nor Alcestis, but of the pains of necessity. The personification of the concept, the very idea of necessity in life. They finish their song by continuing to reassure him, to remind him that Alcestis was loved in life and will continue to be loved in death. They then sing of Alcestis as a hero, as the woman who died in place of her husband. And then... Heracles returns, and he's not alone.
Once the chorus has sung of the sadness of Alcestis, of her gross and sad martyrdom, Heracles returns to the stage accompanied by someone. It's a woman, yes, but she's wearing a veil. We can't see who she is. Heracles speaks to Admetus immediately, raising his concerns about how Admetus handled his arrival as a guest, how he didn't tell him that the woman who had died was his own wife, that he was intruding upon the household's grief. He tells Admetus that this was wrong, that he was left to be unaware, and in being unaware, deeply disrespectful. He says he wants to be mad about this, but he also doesn't want to hurt Admetus when he's already hurting so much already. Now, he says, let me explain who this woman is who's with me. I've brought her to you to keep her safe. Heracles tells Admetus that he's killed the king of the Bistonians and that he's brought back those Thracian mares as Eurystheus ordered as part of his labors. He has to bring them back to Eurystheus now, all the way to Tyrion, so he wants to leave this woman with Admetus for safekeeping. He tells him to keep her in his house as a servant. He says he went through quite a bit to get her. That he came upon men holding an athletic competition, and there he won her as a prize. You know how much I love women as prizes. He explains some more details that we don't care about before explicitly saying that he didn't steal her. He won her with skill and effort, and that now he's giving her to Admetus. Admetus, though, doesn't want this woman. He asks Heracles to please, please bring her to any of his other friends in Thessaly instead. That if Admetus were to keep her, he would only be more sad than he already is. He goes on to ask where she will live in the house, because she's young and, quote, how will she remain pure, moving around among young men? Ugh. Even better, his next suggestion is the what... Should I bring her into my dead wife's bed? What will people think? (laughs) I have truly lost all of my patience with Admetus. But hey, at least he's funny, because he continues, quote, Woman, whoever you are, know you have Alcestis's size and shape. You look just like her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Heracles then notes that he wishes he could bring Alcestis back from the dead and return her to Admetus. This play is just so weird. I will never get over it. From here, the pair launch into a back and forth where Heracles does agree that Admetus has lost a wonderful, noble wife, the best wife in Alcestis, but that time will help to ease his pain and that, well, quote, a new wife will cure your longing. Admetus, to his credit, says no, absolutely not, and that Heracles shouldn't even speak such a thing. But then when Heracles counters, asking him, what, you'll never remarry? Admetus says no one would want him. They go on like this, with Admetus explaining that he promised his dying wife that he wouldn't remarry, that he wouldn't betray her in this way. May he die if he does. Heracles returns to the question of the strange woman standing there, veiled, asking Admetus to take her into his house. Admetus doesn't want to. He keeps pushing back. Heracles tells him he'll be making a big mistake to trust him. It's just what he needs. (laughs) Finally, Admetus agrees, but he's super mad about it, wishing that Heracles had never won this woman as a prize in the first place. 
He's like, okay, fine. I can't convince you otherwise, so I will take her, but she must just go away. And Heracles is honestly basically just winking super obviously at this point. He says he knows something that he wants Admetus to take her himself. (laughs) I honestly can't tell if it's meant to be dramatic at all. I mean, maybe, but it comes off as mostly comedic in the text. I'm just so curious how it would have been played. It's bizarre. Like, the chorus all knows that Heracles made his bizarre pronouncement that he was going to squeeze Thanatos until he gave Alcestis up, and then he arrives with this veiled woman who, uh, you know, looks just like her, and he works this hard to convince Admetus to take her. At one point, Admetus is like, okay, fine, she can come into this house. Hey, attendant, why don't you go take her in? And then again, nearly winking his entire face, Heracles is like, oh, well, no, no, I don't think she should go with an attendant. I only trust her with you. He might as well be jabbing Admetus with his elbow, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, get it, Admetus, get it? (laughs) Finally, Admetus says, and these next bits are all quotes, You force me to do this against my will. Heracles says, Courage! Reach out your hand and touch the stranger. I reach out my hand as if beheading a gorgon, Admetus says as he takes hold of the woman's arm. You have her? Yes, Admetus says. Keep her safe. (laughs) And then he pulls off the woman's veil and, Oh, what do you know? Can you believe it? Big surprise. Who saw this coming? Not me. It's Alcestis. Quote, look at her. Does she look like your wife? (laughs) I love that Heracles had to spell it out for Admetus. Not totally certain who needed the obvious reveal more, like, but it really adds to the comedy. But, well, there she is. Admetus can't believe it at first, which I mean, who, who blames him? It is super weird and not even a thing that happens elsewhere in Greek mythology. Like, even Orpheus failed in bringing back Eurydice. This is an absolute one-off, which in itself makes this play so much weirder. But in the end, Heracles convinces Admetus that this is, in fact, his wife. Quote, This friend of yours doesn't conjure with ghosts. (laughs) Admetus is in shock, and Alcestis is just standing there while these two men talk about her. It's just so bizarre. He doesn't speak to her, though. (laughs) He doesn't even try. Before he even clocks that she stayed so silent, he's already asked Heracles how he got her back, an explanation of which that takes up, like, literally two lines. Quote, I fought with a god who was in charge of her. Beside her tomb, I ambushed him and grabbed him. Squeezing Thanatos real hard worked. (laughs) And this, this is when Admetus asks why she's remained silent. And Heracles explains to him that, uh, well, he's not actually allowed to hear her voice yet, that she can't speak until she's been back for three days, and then she'll be released from the bond that she has now with the underworld. Sure. Then he just tells Admetus to bring her inside. He turns down an offer to be a guest once more. He's got some man-eating horses to return to Eurystheus. And so with a wave, he's gone. Admetus has a quick announcement to his people that they should celebrate and sacrifice to the gods. Quote, For the life I now adopt is better than the life before. I won't deny I'm lucky. And uh, the chorus adds simply, quote, 
Divinity takes many forms, the gods accomplish many startling things. What we expect does not take place, and the god makes way for the unexpected. And so it came about in this affair. And Alcestis remains silent. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you so much for listening. I can't fully express how much I enjoyed reading through this play and sharing it with you. Notably, the actual experience of just moving through it and having everything I thought I knew about it blow up in my face. I guess I just assumed it was some super dramatic play because more often than not, that's what Euripides does. Like, he does it well, but he does drama and gore and tragedy. I mean, he usually tosses in some comedy or at least in certain plays like Bacchae, but this, this is something else. All I knew about this play is that Alcestis died and Heracles brought her back from the dead. But I, I just, I assumed it was some dramatic and tragic and emotional moment, some moving and beautiful piece of art. Heracles bringing back from the dead this woman, ugh, in some heroic fashion, some life-changing moment of emotional heft. Instead, it's like, ah, shit, I was rude. I can't believe I was rude. Welp, guess my only option is to bring a lady back from the dead. No matter how weird that sounds, I'll just squeeze the god of death. Poof, bam, it's done. Not to say I was disappointed. I'm actually even more fascinated to know this work as what it is. I'm thrilled to know Euripides was so capable of being weird and funny and making these odd and comedic choices in what is on its face, a tragic story of a woman's death. It is just so deeply weird and I'm kind of obsessed and I can't stop using the word weird. (sighs) Greek tragedy, or in this case, Greek tragic comedy, always surprises me in the best ways, always just emphasizes why I love it so much. Euripides is such a guy. He's just the best. Sophocles and Aeschylus are great, but seriously, no one will ever convince me Euripides isn't the best. And every play of his that I read just cements that more. Fucking Alcestis. What a work of art. And we're not done with it yet. No, on Friday's episode, I will be joined by none other than fan favorite returning guest, wealth of chthonic knowledge, Dr. Ellie McEnroberts, to talk all things Alcestis. Ellie put her name in to talk about Alcestis so, so long ago, like before I even thought about covering it. Basically, she just tweeted at me something like, Alcestis, in all caps, maybe. I don't even know. So I was absolutely thrilled to finally schedule in handling this play and then to have her back. Oh, you're going to love it. Well, again, I will finish it off with a short and sweet five-star review from Apple Podcasts. This one is from LK Went in the US. Great listen. Factual, dramatic, and feminist. I love it. Thank you. All things I aspire to continue to be. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley edits scripts and transcribes episodes for accessible YouTube captions. She has been immensely helpful. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv, and I love Euripides so much I want to scream. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, 
Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.